Hey! <laughs> hey! Uh, hey. Um, what's up? This is Phil. Phil May. Uh, your host, today and always, of PH5. Back with uh, another episode of the titular PH5. I'm sitting here in my absolute fucking sauna of a bedroom. It's warm. Uh, I hope it's warm where you are. I hope it isn't as warm as it is where I am, though. I hope it's comfortable where you are. Because uh, it's going to be kind of an uncomfortable episode today. Kind of. Probably not really. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. How's everyone been? This was May that we just got through. My birthday month. Um... Phil May, born in May. Da, 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 da. Uh, what else was going on in May? Um, I got COVID. That was cool. You know, about freaking time, am I right? Yeah, did that whole thing. Uh, shouts out to vaccines and boosters because uh, that shit would have sucked probably a lot, a lot more, had I not been prepared. And uh, yeah, got a new job that I start tomorrow. Uh, yeah, you know, trucking along here. This is, uh, oh, I got really bad, I got a terrible sunburn. You know, it's like every summer, uh, I, I just kind of forget that it's a thing. Um, you know, like actually having, like, sunburns. You just don't take it seriously. Well, I don't. I'm sure other people out there who have a lot more sense than I do, do take it seriously. But I just kind of like forget that it actually affects me. And I'm like, oh, I'm immune. You know, like I'm not gonna get sunburned. Like I gotta be outside in the sun for like 12 straight hours to get sunburned. No, I mean, I'm, I'm truly a pasty ass white boy and it really doesn't take much. So I got brutally burnt and uh, well, we can just say now I've learned my lesson and I'm ready to go for the rest of summer. So yeah. Um, we had some music that was released in May. That's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, lots of interesting stuff. Not necessarily a lot of good stuff. Uh, I kind of struggled a little bit this month, if I'm being honest with you. Uh, I had to really, really kind of go out of my way to find records that I was really into. You know, mostly they kind of fall into my lap. But, uh, I mean, it could have been a mix of me just being busy this month, not having a lot of time to listen to music, seek out new music, but uh, it was hard. But I got some stuff to talk about with you guys today. So don't worry, all right? Um, we're gonna have a blast, as we always do. So why don't we get started? Uh, mostly because I'm trying to limit my time in this room. I may, uh, like, make like one of those dogs in a hot car soon. So, I'm gonna try and get through this episode. Although, it would be pretty epic if I were to, like, I don't wanna say die on camera, because there's no cameras here, but, like, if I were to just, like, die of heat exhaustion in the middle of this episode, I would probably put it up there in, like, the top five. PH5 episodes, I'd say. So let's go and uh, get her done. So thank you as always for listening. 
This is Phil May, PH5, uh, episode five, season two. We're we're still doing it. We're still doing it, and uh, that's the plan moving forward forever. So thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, I, I do. I do go back and forth a lot on whether or not to keep this going, but you know, I. Whenever I have my doubts, I, I go to the kind of analytics page and see how the podcast is doing. And it's like, you know, there are actually people out there listening. So this is for you guys. Uh, I appreciate you. Uh, I, I, I do just love to talk about music. So, you know, it's so nice to have people out there who are actually willing to listen to my bullshit. Thank you. All right, here we go. So, coming in at number five this week, we have Heavy Pendulum by Cave-In. So, Cave-In is a band that I used to just absolutely adore. They have a number of absolute kind of classics under their belt. Um, Whether we're talking about until your heart stops, which is maybe one of the first metalcore classics ever, I'd say. Uh, Jupiter, which is kind of an astounding achievement in bands kind of pivoting away from the sound that they're known for into more creative, different territory to really great results. I mean, a lot of bands do it, but not a lot of bands can actually pull it off. Uh, White Silence from, you know, 2011, another great record, one of my favorites that year. So they've been around for a while, but Caven is in a unique situation because one of the founding members, one of the driving creative forces of the band, their bassist, Caleb Schofield, uh, very tragically passed away in a car accident back in 2018. Uh, this was a pretty big deal. Uh, Caven is a, a band that is absolutely legendary in a lot of circles. And Caleb had his hands in a lot of the different scenes that kind of sprung up around the music that Caven was creating and uh, other associated acts. So his passing was a big deal. And it really, I'd say, called into question the future of this band. All the members of this band kind of have other things going on. You know, they're established in their scenes and in, in, in various different projects. So it was the kind of thing where with Caleb passing, it was almost like, does, does Caven even really need to continue? Considering how important he was to the band, considering what he brought to the table in terms of the songwriting and performances and all that kind of stuff. And these guys are busy enough with enough other projects, it's like, Maybe, I don't know, maybe they just don't really need to keep going, you know? Maybe they preserve Caleb's legacy by just kind of stopping and let, you know, the previous work speak for itself. Uh, while they were... When, when Caleb passed away, they were actually in the middle of writing and just about to get into recording a new record. And uh, they ended up releasing that record basically more or less as is um, at the point at which he passed away. So 
uh, Final Transmission is what it was called. The songs were mostly incomplete, more like sketches of songs. Uh, it was more meant as like a, a, a full-on tribute to Caleb and uh, the amazing stuff that he brought to the band. And after Final Transmission, um, it kind of seemed like that was probably going to be it. I mean, it was literally called Final Transmission. You can't blame the music world for thinking that that was probably going to be their last album. And that it's a fine... You know, you, you can stop. It's totally fine. Uh, I don't think anyone was mad at the idea of Caven calling it quits at that point. It makes sense. Um... They, they've released tons of great records, uh, but you can tell also kind of listening to Final Transmission that as cool as it was to hear these ideas of all these songs that they had ready to go uh, with Caleb, it also wasn't the best. And you can kind of tell that maybe they were maybe a little bit creatively stagnant, maybe a little bit running out of steam. So maybe calling it quits at that point wasn't the worst idea. So I was admittedly pretty shocked when they announced this new record. I was like, oh, you guys are you're, you're going to keep going. Okay, uh, sure. <laughs> Why not, I guess. So for this new record, they have uh, Nate from Converge coming in to kind of take over bass and harsh vocal duties to replace Caleb. I mean, you can never really replace him, but this is... You know, Nate coming in to fill the role, that empty space that Caleb left behind. And, you know, ostensibly, this is a new beginning for Caven. You know, uh, I think that if they wanted to just kind of do a one last go at it, they wouldn't have made a record quite like this one. Because, uh, well, first of all, it's long as hell. It's like 73 minutes long or something like that. There's a ton of songs on here. And... It sounds very familiar to a lot of past work that they've released, but it's also kind of its own thing. Uh, it sounds very much like Caleb, sorry, not Caleb, Caven being aged dudes making older guys music, you know? Uh, it still is packed to the core with meaty ass riffs. Um, Awesome low-end production courtesy of uh, Kurt Ballow and uh, But what really sets it apart is that this is very much a grunge influenced record Which they've never really quite touched on before. I mean these guys have done metalcore space rock psychedelia um, even more or less straight-up alt-rock uh, if you look at um, What's that album called anchor? No, that was the song antenna whatever uh, but they haven't quite done this kind of music before and you can tell it, it's really grunge and really almost like classic rock influenced so it's the sound of of this band kind of easing into their late career status their older age and it's not amazing but if I'm being very honest with you, I was not expecting this record to be very good at all. I can't quite put my finger on why I had such low expectations for it. You know, maybe it was kind of the diminishing returns of Final Transmission, or uh, I don't know, just the fact that they seemed focused on 
all the other different projects that they're doing. And, you know, I guess maybe in my head I interpreted this as them being like, shit, you know, like our other bands are kind of flailing right now, we need to go back to our cash cow. I mean, it's funny that you could consider Cave in a cash cow, but it's definitely the most popular of all the bands that anyone in this band is associated with. Like, we gotta go back and we, you know, we gotta crank out another album, get another, you know, touring cycle in so we can start making some money again. So I guess I had a pretty cynical view of what this project was all about. And while it isn't amazing, it is certainly a lot better than I was expecting it to be. Uh, there's too many songs, um, too many unmemorable songs, but there's also a number of great songs on here as well. Um, title track Heavy Pendulum is kind of a, a, a great also tribute to Caleb. Um, Floating Skulls is another great song that sees them, you know, kind of mixing up hooky choruses with their kind of heavy grunge sound. There's a few, like, really sprawling epics on here. I mean, it is Caven after a while. I mean, duh. Sorry, I'm getting all my expressions confused. It's the little brain fog thing, you know, COVID. This is great, though, because I can blame literally anything that's wrong with me now. I'm just being like, well, COVID, what do you want from me? So thanks for that. Uh, but it, it's a solid record. You know what? It's better than I thought it would be. And you can tell that these guys still have some some juice in them, you know? There's still some gas in the machine, and they seem content to get this engine running again. And that's very exciting for me. Uh, I mean, I never got to see them live, so hopefully this means that they'll get to tour, and I'll get to see some of my all-time favorite songs performed live. And, you know, maybe even a few of these songs too, I guess, if they want to. I prefer they didn't, but that's okay. But yeah, it's just nice to hear that a band that you'd kind of written off because of just terrible extenuating circumstances maybe shouldn't be written off after all. And 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 you know what? You got you gotta give props to that. That's a huge blessing. That, you know, Caven is not dead. What what's that expression? It's like the rumors of my demise have been greatly exaggerated. Yeah, that should be the fucking tagline for this album, because they're not demised <laughs> real word they're here they're still kicking ass and they're still a great band they're they're you know not making nearly the quality of music they used to make like i threw on white silence for the first time in a few years just the other day and i was just like wow <laughs> this album fucking rips uh go listen to sing my loves by caven it's like the best song ever but it's still good so Maybe if this was any other band, it wouldn't have made its way into my top five. But the fact that it's Caven, the fact that they have this history surrounding them, you know, the terrible circumstances with the passing of one of their core songwriters, um, I'm, I'm, I'm giving it to them, you know? It's, it's kind of like a legacy vote kind of thing. So coming in at number five for the month of May, we have Caven and Heavy Pendulum. Coming in at number four for the month of May, we have Boldy James's collaboration with Real Bad Man, 
uh, album called Killing Nothing. So Boldy James has been this guy that's kind of been on the tertiary of my interest in this kind of new wave of hip-hop. Uh, you know, that includes Billy Woods and the whole Griselda crew. Um, what's his name? Makami from last year. This is a guy that, you know, has lots of collaborations with these guys, always sounds great on any of their records, and has had a pretty popular run of records over the past uh, few years. But no, nothing's really stuck with me the way that, you know, maybe other artists like Matt Colomy and Billy Woods albums has. Uh, so this is the first of his records that has really stood out to me since he's kind of caught my attention in 2020 and moving forward. And I think a big reason because of this is because of the production. Um, he's a great rapper. He is so good at, you know, sticking into the pocket of the beat and really riding the flow really, really well. Uh, he paints really vivid pictures of, you know, the street life in Detroit where he's from and, you know, the coming up on the drug scene there. Um, but his, his voice has this, like, kind of monotone quality to it that I find is really easy to just kind of lose your attention. So what he's really needed, for me at least, is a solid group of beats that can kind of take away from the monotony of his voice by being exciting, uh, kind of to make up for it, if that makes any sense. And that way, you know, you're not spending as much time paying attention to, you know, how kind of boring his voice can be because you're excited by all the sounds that you're hearing surrounding his voice. And that, that kind of lets you ease up on that a little bit so you can pay more attention to, you know, these really poetic descriptions of street life and, you know, the, the hardships and, you know, consequences of that street life. There are, are a few collabs on this record. Uh, no one really all that much of note except for Stove God Cooks, who is having just an absolutely insane run of features lately. Uh, anytime you see that he's on a song, you just get excited for that verse. It'll be... I'm excited to see if that translates to a solid full length from him necessarily, but for now it's just like, you know that this guy's on a song, you gotta hear it because you know he's gonna say some completely ridiculous shit in just the coolest sounding way. So that's, that's what Stove God Cook's niche kind of is. But this Boldy James record, again, the subject matter is more or less the same as all of his other records, but it's real bad man and the beats that he's provided for Boldy James across the record, that's really the selling point. Um, the kind of circle of rap that I discussed with, you know, Makami and all the Griselda guys and Billy Woods and that kind of underground New York scene, they love to, they love to play around with these extra abstract beats that, you know, sometimes don't even necessarily have percussion and they're just kind of riding these ambient soundscapes which is really cool, you know, most of the time, for sure. You don't really get any of that on this record, though. This is, like, basically straight-up boom-bap. And, like I mentioned, Boldy is so good at kind of sticking in the pocket of the beat 
and, and, and riding it so smoothly. And this combination of these really, really groovy beats and Boldy's just immaculate flow makes for just a great listening experience. Um, and you end up with definitely one of the better hip-hop records released this year. Uh, the best one released this month, I would say. Ooh, what is he alluding to? I don't know. We'll have to wait and find out. But yeah, I mean, it's it's you know what you're getting when you're going to listen to it. You know exactly the kind of subject matter that he's going to be rapping about. But he does it really well, and he does it really well on beats that sound great and are really easy to just kind of bob your head to and just really get into. So, I mean, there's a lot to be said for experimentalism and, you know, pushing boundaries and stuff like that, but I think there's also a lot to be said for doing something more or less traditional and doing it really damn well. And that's what's going on here on this record. So, coming in at number four for the month of May is Killing Nothing by Boldy James and Real Badman. Okay, it's time for the part of the show that uh, everyone just absolutely loves. I, I, I think. Um, no one's really said anything to me about it one way or the other. Um, but I'm assuming they love it. It's the mentions. These are the mentions. The mentions. So, starting off with, of course, the dishonorable mention for the month of May, we are going with A Light to Attract Attention by The Smile. Ooh, ee, hot take, hot take. Let me explain. So, when you take a look at this band, The Smile, I think there's one big elephant in the room type question that just begs to be asked. And it is, how is this band not Radiohead? So, the reason I say this is because The Smile is comprised of Tom York of Radiohead and Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead and uh, the drummer who I unfortunately don't remember the name of from uh, Jazz Fusion Group, Sons of Comet. So, the two principal songwriters from Radiohead are here in this band. Not only that, but the record was produced by Nigel Goderich, who is the producer for Radiohead. So, all of this said, how is this band not Radiohead? Sure, you know, they're missing um, the other guys in Radiohead, you know, Phil, Ed, um, the other guy whose name I don't remember. I'm so sorry. You're important too, I swear. Uh, and those guys are important, you know? They are more than half of the band, for sure. But Radiohead really, what it really, really is, is the songwriting duo of Johnny Greenwood and Tom York. Like, these are the guys 
whose collaborative spirit have resulted in some of the best music ever made. You know, if you go back to Radiohead's discography and catalog, they've got multiple classics, which is hard for any band to say, and they've had a certain longevity that is almost unprecedented in music in general. I mean, these guys came onto the scene with Creep back in the early 90s, which, again, not not a great song, but it, it got them kind of famous. And basically, ever since, they've been, you know, pounding out amazing records that have been equally critically and commercially adored. Uh, not a lot of bands have been able to sustain this type of both critical and commercial success the way that they have over the past, like, almost literally like 30 years, you know? It's really hard to do. And I... How do I put this? Do I love Radiohead or did I used to love Radiohead? You know, I say I, I, I love Radiohead. I mean, they were definitely one of my favorite bands for a long time. And so many of their records like meant so much to me as a teenager and early 20s growing up, like actually kind of life-changing stuff as it was for so many people around the world. You know, the way that they're able to push the envelope over and over and over again, but in a way that it still sounds good and the songs are still great and all this kind of stuff is, is, is really, it's really incredible. I mean, I don't need to talk about how amazing Radiohead is, like, come on, that's ridiculous. We all know, everyone knows. So, so what the hell is going on now? What, what is this The Smile Band? Um, you know, Radiohead did release a moon-shaped pool. I think it was back in 2016. Uh, a record that I didn't particularly love, but many, many people did. And uh, I would say has a comfortable place in the pantheon of Radiohead records. No one's saying they fell off of that record. So, so what's going on here? Why are the main songwriters of Radiohead making music that isn't Radiohead? And how do those other guys feel about it? Um, great question. I don't know. But I think I figured it out. Not the, how the other guys feel about it part. I don't know how they feel about it. I, don't know. I mean, I am an empath, but <laughs> it has limitations. Um, that was a joke. Please, please don't call yourself an empath. It's so corny. Um, anyway, my point being, I know why this album exists now. <clears throat> Radi being in Radiohead, being Tom York, being Johnny Greenwood must be pretty stressful sometimes. Because you have set the bar so ridiculously high for yourself. Like, basically, if you guys don't put together and release a perfect record, people are going to say that you fell off and that, you know, you're done, blah, blah, blah. Like, it, it's, it's absolutely insane how high the expectations are for Radiohead's music. But these are two guys that obviously still love to just make music. You know, they've, um, Tom has had his own He's had solo records, he's had his Adams for Peace project. Uh, 
Johnny has his soundtrack work. He's even worked with a few, uh, like he worked with an Indian orchestra, released a full record with them back in the day. So these are guys that just love making music. And the fact that they stuck together and made Radiohead records for this long must mean they like making music with each other. But the pressure is almost a little bit too high, you know? So, what is the smile then? What is this band? Why is it not Radiohead? The answer is quite simple, folks. The answer is Johnny and Tom want to keep making music but they don't want the pressure of making absolutely perfect, life-changing, monumental music. They just want to make stuff that's fun, that they enjoy, and, and not have to stress out about, you know, whether or not it's going to change the legacy of one of the quote-unquote greatest bands of all time. So, what is The Smile? The Smile is Johnny and Tom's mid-music. It's, it's just the songs that they've written that aren't really that good. <laughs> well, not as good for a Radiohead record, at least. And I know this is kind of a harsh truth, but I mean, you gotta be a real, real, real brainwashed Radiohead fanboy to listen to this record and genuinely think to yourself, these songs are really good. Um, they're not. The songs aren't that great. Let's be, let's just be, let's, let's be honest with ourselves here, guys. This record kind of sucks. Um, it's way too long. There's like 14 songs or something like that. And having listened to it in full multiple times, I don't even remember what most of them sound like. Uh, the songwriting is just not there. So you can't even say that this is them doing like a side project of a unique different style of music that's different from Radiohead because you listen to this album and you're like all of these songs kind of sound like Radiohead songs like there's nothing necessarily distinguishing them from songs that you could have heard on any of you know those Radiohead albums except for one thing they're not as good as any of those Radiohead songs so what the smile is is just literally Johnny and Tom wanting to continue to make music but not having to worry about making the best music ever. So they're just making kind of like these whatever songs, you know? And there's nothing wrong with that. I fully support it. You know, they've more than earned the right to do this at this point. Like the amount of just absolutely incredible music that these guys have made is unlike probably anyone else in the world. So if they wanna just make some, you know, lower stakes, whatever music, they should be well within the rights to do so. And that's exactly what this album is. It's just like bad Radiohead, which again, bad Radiohead is still okay music. Um, okay computer. <laughs> wow, good one. Um, but that's just what this is. And there are a lot of people out there that are loving this Smile record. Uh, I'm not. I found it to be really boring. And that's okay. That's totally okay, because I'm just some guy who fucking cares. You know, if they want to continue making Smile records, they should go for it. You know, I hope maybe they make 
a better smile record someday. Um, but I mean, I think I'm with everyone, whether you want to admit it or not, in that I would love for them to get together with all those other guys and really try and bang out another Radiohead record because I don't feel like the Radiohead story is over yet. Um, but until then, you know, all power to Tom and Johnny. Keep pushing out these mid-ass tracks. Do you, okay? You've been kicking around here for 30 years or so. You want to release some bullshit? Fucking go for it. Good for you. I respect it. But that doesn't mean I'm going to listen to it. So, coming in on the dishonorable mention for May is The Smile, A Light to Attract Attention. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. The mention for May... is Kendrick Lamar, Mr. Morrell, and the Big Steppers. I think we all knew that this moment was coming where I would have to talk about this record. I've been kind of dreading it for the past few weeks because there is a lot to talk about and all of it is really complicated. <laughs> Not to mention, um, most of the subject matter I is not really my place to talk about. So I'm going to do my best to speak on this record from my point of view with full knowledge that this record was not made for me to speak about, if that makes sense. So. Let me do my best to unpack what is, without a doubt, the most tightly packed, controversial, question mark, record, um, released to this much degree, like, this popular in quite some time. I say arguably since Yeezus, personally. So, <laughs> where to even begin? The first thing that I want to kind of talk about is privilege. Um, okay, I'm going to say this phrase, and before I say it, I want you to understand that the way I'm going to say it is not exactly the way I want to say it, in the way that it should be said, but it's the best way I can think of putting it into words and articulating it right, right now. And it is that wokeness is, to an extent, a privilege. Uh, I really, really hate the word woke and this whole idea of that. Um, but it is a neat encapsulation of this idea of, you know, thinking progressively and, you know, a certain, a certain mindset and a certain way of looking at the world that's different from another way. 
Uh, I think that the term has been absolutely skewered by, you know, um, right-wing people who are trying to devalue progressive thought and devalue <laughs> morality, if you will. Um, which is why I hate saying it, you know? It's like, it's become kind of a caricature of itself, the term. But I, I think for now, it serves the purpose that I wanted to. Because when I say wokeness and I say woke, you know exactly what I'm referring to. You know what I mean when I say it. So I'm going to say it again. Wokeness is, to an extent, a privilege. Now, what do I mean by this? And why am I even bringing it up? Um, in order to learn the things that constitute being progressive and have this understanding of the nuance of society and, and the people who have it more difficult in society and, and why they have it more difficult and all that kind of stuff. Not even people who have it difficult, people who are just just different because um, that's ultimately what it boils down to it's uh, otherness and uh, fear of things that are different from yourself a lot of learning these things comes from a place of privilege and I mean this because if you grow up in a condition where you're impoverished and your family is fighting to, you know, make money and, 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 and just survive, the things that you experience growing up in these kind of conditions, um, you're not really thinking about other people. You're not really thinking about the other issues that that plague society your concern is yourself your concern is how is my family going to last the week how am i going to survive and all this kind of stuff and the things that you learn are very fundamental to survival and they're very almost localized to your specific environment that you're in, you know? It's like... Like... When your main concern is... How am I going to feed my family? How am I going to pay rent for this month? How am I going to put clothes on myself and the close people in my lives back? If that's what your main concern is, and that's the issues that kind of plague you day in and day out, 24-7, you don't really have time to learn about these other issues that other people are facing. And you become almost very insular. You, you, your focus is on yourself. Your focus is on survival and the means to get by. Whereas, uh, a person such as myself, who is in a position of privilege where growing up and, and you know, entering 
adulthood and whatnot, those aren't things that I'm necessarily thinking about 24-7. You know, sure, you know, it's not like I grew up rich or anything like that. I, I, I come from, you know, the fringes of poverty myself. But it was to the point where I'm not as concerned about that kind of stuff. And therefore, my mind is open to other things, you know? My mind is open to learning about the experiences of others and learning about the hardship of others and learning about societal and historical contexts for things being the way that they are. And it makes it a lot easier for me to have this progressive mindset and identify as a person who is progressive, who is quote unquote woke, because I'm lucky to not have to worry about other things that I can pay attention to these issues. I can pay attention to the problems that, um, you know, POCs face, that the LGBT community faces. Like, I can take time and soak in that information, learn about them, and really grow my sense of empathy towards these people because I'm not as concerned about myself and my conditions but this isn't really the case for everyone and so I've always found it really kind of funny when like I remember a few years back um I think it was one of the guys in the Migos like like I don't know Quavo or Offset or something like that uh they were just breaking out you know just making mainstream attention and one of the questions that they were asked in an interview was something along the lines of like, what are your thoughts on the trans community? And the answer was something along the lines of like, I, I don't, I don't know anything of, like, These I, are the like, I don't know anything about that. You know, my life. My life has been about surviving and doing whatever it takes to feed my family and put food on the table and whatnot. Like, I and, and so because of that, I always found it really funny. Like, why are we throwing these questions that are meant basically to cast these upcoming rappers and whatnot in a bad light? Because you're you're trying to get knowledge out of them that they have no context on, that they don't understand anything about. And society, we're so quick to quote-unquote, you know, cancel people. Again, another term that I hate, but I have to use because you understand what I mean when I'm talking about it. And I think that it's unfair to expect these people who have come up from these less than ideal circumstances to have the perfect answer and the, the perfect ideology and the perfect mindset, you know, the perfect level of acceptance for uh, things that they don't understand because they were never taught about them at an early age. They were never taught about them at all. And like I mentioned, you grow up in this very insular environment where you know, maybe the people around you have just 
brought upon these negative connotations for people that are different than you your entire life. So there's this automatic knee-jerk negative reaction to some, you know, like something different than what they understand initially because they never had the chance to properly be educated on, you know, LGBT issues, stuff like that. So, I think Kendrick is talking a lot about that on this record. And very rightfully so. Um, I think it is a big problem that the rap community faces. It's just like, it's almost targeting. It's like, we're going to go out of our way to position these rappers as bad people because their politics aren't exactly in line with mine. But it's not fair because we have had so much more opportunity to learn about what life is like and the hardships that other people face than they have. They've been focused on their own hardships and rightfully so because, you know, they come from extreme poverty conditions. So why would they know or care about any other people's issues? Um, there's a there's a that Atlanta episode. <laughs> I think you guys would know the one I'm talking about, where Paperboy is being kind of interviewed about uh, you know some homophobic lyrics that he said in some of his songs, and um, you know, and asked about what he thinks about you know trans issues and his response is basically like why would I care about that when you guys don't even care about me and that is a lot of what's going on in this record it's not it's not Kendrick being like oh you know like why should I care about anyone else but myself but it's it's a lot of framing of like the world needs to understand that the people that Kendrick works with, the people that Kendrick has grown up with and, and surrounds himself with, haven't had the opportunities to ed educate themselves in the same way that we have. So to s hold them to the same standard of political correctness is just inherently flawed and is set up for them to fail. And I think it's a great message. I think it's a great thing for him to talk about. It's a great um, point to make that people need to kind of understand. Now, all this being said, the ways by which he goes around making this point a lot of the time is deeply flawed. Uh, you know, even even knowing that he comes from a background where surely he's not as educated on these things as someone like myself is. Uh, he's trying to make some good points, but the way that he goes about them is not good. The most glaring example of this on the record is the repeated instances 
of Kodak Black being featured on numerous songs. So this was a very intentional effort from Kendrick to, you know, kind of be controversial by having Kodak on here. And the point you can see that he's trying to make is, I'm taking this quote-unquote cancelled rapper and I'm bringing him onto my album, which is surely to be likely the biggest hip-hop project of the year, in an attempt to almost uncancel Kodak Black. And I see what he's trying to do. I, I, I get the point that he's trying to make, you know? It's unfair for us to um, ruin the career of this young man who came from these terrible conditions. Um, but the thing is, the reason why Kodak was cancelled, again, quote-unquote cancelled, is because he's a literal rapist. And platforming rapists is I don't care what background you come from like this guy is convicted it's unacceptable it, it's just absolutely unacceptable um, especially when you have a song uh, you have the song on here um, Father Time where it's talking about you know the daddy issues that he has and all this kind of stuff and like one of the last lines of the song is like Let's give black women a break, you know? But it's like, dude, how can you say that? And then the next, the next song that you have is a guy convicted of raping a black woman. Like, what the fuck are you thinking? And Kenrick has such a big platform. He is so influential to so many people um, so many kids, so many adults out there look up to him as this almost like savior figure. And they will, they will listen to him. They will, you know, they will learn from him. They, they see him as a teacher, as a wise person, etc, etc. And rightfully so. And there are a lot of great lessons on here for them to learn. Um... You know, there's Auntie's Diaries, where he uh, is a very sympathetic song towards his uh, trans family members. But again, it almost goes back to the same problem with including Kodak. It's like, okay, like, that was cool of you to, you know, give an example of this great kind of idea that you're passing along. But in this song, you say the F word just casually over and over and over again. And I know you're just saying it to be like, you know, no, 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 we didn't know no better or whatever. But it's like, now you do. So like, wh where do you get off still? Like, do you know how triggering this must be for some people that are listening to your music? You know, um queer people who love you and are hearing you just say this word over and over and over again in a song like that that hurts these are people that have grown to trust you as someone to look up to over the years and now you're just going to throw that term around so casually like it's nothing at all and in the middle of a song that you're trying to be sympathetic to this group of people as well and constantly misgendering and constantly using dead names and stuff like this 
And I don't care if he's doing it intentionally to like make a point of how he's changed or whatever. This is where his selfishness kind of comes in. And it's like, you're making this song about your trans family members about you? Like, really? Like, what are you thinking, man? This is not everything is about you, Kendrick. And that is kind of the big takeaway that I have from this album of his is he is so caught up in himself that even when he's trying to make what are ostensibly good points and good arguments and good lessons for people to learn, he's so caught up in himself in his own like self mythology that it just sours it along the way. And you get this really complicated, confusing message where you're not really sure what it is that he's trying to say because he's melded too much of his own shit in with what are, again, great points and, and great lessons for people to learn. So in that way, the record almost becomes a failure to me. Um, it has so much potential to be this uh, controversial yet you know inspiring document of black generational trauma and 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 trying to let the world understand what it's actually like to come up from these kind of conditions and what it does to your brain and what it does to your outlook on the world and all this kind of stuff but there's too many just really really questionable decisions and kind of platforms that he props these arguments up on that it ruins the whole thing in the process. And it's a shame, because I know he's a smart guy, but I, I, I don't understand why he would have gone about it this way. Um, yeah. So there's my, there's my big, long rant on the new Kendrick Lamar album. Um, and, and as an aside as well, all, all of that discussion aside, uh, it's just not that great of a record. Let's be honest. The songs aren't really that great. We Cry Together is a fascinating document of uh, toxic relationships, for sure. But other than that, like, there's no real great songs on here, unfortunately. It's, it's, it's his first project, I'd say, that is more misses than hits. And when you combine that with just the really kind of confusing, unnecessarily complicated themes that he entwines the whole thing with, it's like, I don't know. I'm disappointed in him. I really am. Uh, sure, he put out a great, like a, not great, but an interesting record, that's for sure. And you gotta give him props to doing that when you're someone as popular as he is. Uh, you know, it's really easy to kind of lean into your more commercial instincts. Uh, and this is not a commercial album at all. This is almost like anti-pop at points, like actually difficult to listen to. But I don't know. It also kind of sounds in a way like it's gonna be maybe his last record. Uh, and if that's the case, mm, this was not the note to go out on. Um, 
Kendrick, you can do a lot better than this. So, coming in at the mention for the month of May is Kendrick Lamar, Mr. Morrell, and the Big Stevers. Whew, okay, that was some heavy stuff. So, let's, uh, let's try and lighten up a little bit here, moving on for the rest of the show. Coming in at the honorable mention for the month of May, we have 700 Bliss and Nothing to Declare. Is that right? Is that what the album's called? Yes. Thank God. So, this is the latest um, collaboration between DJ Haram and More Mother, who is otherwise known as Kamei Ayewa. And what I really like about this record is uh, this is just kind of the sound of two ladies having a lot of fun together in the studio. Um, Kamei, uh, aka More Mother, uh, she's involved in a ton of different projects over the years. Um, her Mur Mother stuff, uh, leading irreversible entanglements. And she's almost more of a poet than a rapper or singer or anything like this. And she always comes correct with incredible poetry about, you know, the black experience in America. And her stuff is very vital, always great to listen to, but it's always like really kind of intense stuff. And, uh, you know, you can tell that she is always speaking from a deeply passionate place. Yeah. And kind of the thing that maybe I'd say turns me off from the music at times is it's almost like too serious, you know? It's, it's just some like constantly heavy shit and uh, it's a lot to take in. And it's a lot to take in. Um, so this is kind of the first project of hers that I feel like she's kind of just lightening up and loosening up a little bit. Um, so it's a collaboration between her and uh, DJ Haram. That uh, They've had a few EPs kind of working up to it, and this is their first full-length collaborated record. Uh, so it's, it's very much... DJ Haram makes this kind of squelchy Detroit-ish techno, um, almost like mixed with more post-punk sounds. And this whole record is basically just the two of them kind of having fun over these beats that DJ Haram has created. And it, it's just so nice to hear Kame having a good time, you know? I'm sure she does with all of her projects, but the mood is always so heavy and intense and all the other things that it's uh, it, it can be just a lot to handle at times. So this is, this is the first project of hers that I, I've actually felt like Okay, I can listen to this the whole way through, like, without needing to, like, get a breath of fresh air halfway, you know? Um, the beats are a lot of fun, uh, the different features across the record are a lot of fun. Um, I mean, she's definitely- Kamei, more mother, she definitely talks about 
some intense stuff. That's just kind of her thing. She can't help it. But she also does lots of fun ad-libs in the back and you know, on half these songs you can almost hear her smile through the speaker. And it's just like, as someone who you got the impression maybe doesn't smile that much, it's just nice to hear, you know? It's really nice to hear. Uh, the songs themselves aren't particularly um, special in any way, but you know, there are some solid grooves on here, some danceable stuff, some shout-alongable stuff, but it's mostly just the energy of the record that I really liked. Um, yeah, great record, it's fun, and hopefully sets a trend of uh, more mother embracing a little bit of light in her music and uh, just having a little bit more fun with it as time goes on. So, yeah, coming in at the honorable mention for the month of May is 700 Bliss, Nothing to Declare. That was a nice breath of fresh air after that stifling Kendrick Lamar discussion, wasn't it? Okay, and those are the mentions. These are the mentions. The mentions. mentions. Folks, I just realized I did this all wrong. Um, brain fog, COVID. I didn't do number three yet. Usually I do five to three mentions, two and one. Uh, nah, nah, so my bad. I know how much you guys love routine and formula and I just totally fucked that up. So forgive me. And we're gonna talk about number three now. So coming in at number three for the month of May is Ethel Kane, Preacher's Daughter. So this is a really kind of interesting record. Uh, it's the debut LP by Ethel Kane. She's released a few EPs leading up to this one, but this is this is the big one that she's definitely been working towards. Um, so Ethel Kane is kind of the pseudonym, artist name, whatever you want to call it, of Hayden Anadonia. Um, Hayden was raised deep South America in a very, very religious family. And this record kind of reckons with all of that. So, Ethel had a, well, sorry, Hayden had a rough time um, growing up. You know, she came out to her parents at a young age, got a lot of negative backlash, and when she eventually came out as trans to the family, uh, it, it did not go over well. Again, very, very strictly religious household. And, you know, when you're dealing with that and you don't have the support you need, in fact, you get kind of the opposite of support, if you will, um, you kind of end up going down a pretty treacherous path. And so the kind of alter ego of Hayden, Ethel Kane, was born at this time. Um, and this is kind of Ethel's story. So it's kind of fiction, kind of not telling the story of like what it was like to reckon with Christianity um, 
as a force for bad instead of good, I would say. Um, this record reminds me a lot, if I had to like kind of put you in a, in a zone to get an idea of what it sounds like, it reminds me a lot of Lana Del Rey. The kind of same um, woozy, lots of ballads about, you know, Americana and an American lifestyle. But whereas Lana was, let's be real, just kind of being a tourist for these kinds of things, uh, Ethel is really about that shit and really about that life. Uh, the record is really, really heavy thematically. Again, dealing with kind of, you know, the, the negative side of growing up in a deeply religious community. Um, lots of references to sexual abuse. Uh, even at one point in the record, the character of Ethel dying at the end. So it is a, it, it can be a tough listen at times, but... Uh, she's managed to create this really, really spellbinding world. Um, and you can really... It really puts you in a place when you listen to it. Um, most of the songs are slow, kind of dirges. Um, the, it's funny, the like, second song of the album is this uh, kind of a fake-out almost sounds like a country song kind of upbeat and then for the rest of the record it's just like a real descent almost right into darkness um and it it sounds a lot like lana if lana was willing to really go for it instead of you know uh alluding to the things that she does and kind of playing with um the darkness but not really fully committing to it this is this album is all about commitment to the sound and to uh, this really dark story of Ethel Kane. And what I like is she's not afraid to get heavy sonically as well as she is lyrically. Um, there are a number of instances on this record that have songs kind of trail out with these long um, guitar solos. Uh, there's a, there's a part of one song, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, like, Tolomania or something like that, <coughs> which is a pretty heavy song, has a full-on scream in it, um, a almost like sludge metal ending to the song, and then it trails off into these two instrumentals that, uh, are meant to signify, you know, the character Ethel's death. And the whole thing is just this big, long, grand adventure in in doom and in, in the darkness of Christianity. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating listen, and it's one of those kind of very auteur-like experiences where uh, you can tell how much effort and how much meticulous thought Ethel put into crafting this album and I'd say it's definitely a success it's it's been getting a lot of buzz um, lots of articles being written about her and the record um, I don't know if it's necessarily star making for sure but it will definitely have an impact on the 
I'd say quote unquote underground pop community. Um, the the main issue I think that I have with the record is she needs to work on her songwriting. Um, the whole thing kind of is just a vibe the whole way through, which is fine, but it would be nice to have more memorable songs, you know, more memorable choruses. So if I could like plot the trajectory of Ethel Kane in my head right now, I'd say she probably needs to start working with some songwriters in the future. Um, from what I could tell, this entire record was uh, written by herself. Most of it produced by herself as well, apart from a few songs that had uh, some outside help. So it's, it's, it's a really, really impressive debut. Um, I think it's the start to what's going to be a really exciting career for Ethel Kane. And yeah, one, one of the big E experience albums that have been released so far in 2022. So, coming in at number three, we have Ethel Kane, Preacher's Daughter. Coming in at number two, we have the Loser by Gospel. A really, really interesting band. So they released one album back in like 2004, 2005. Um, had a huge impact on the kind of prog inflected screamo scene. And then they disappeared. It was one of those instances where, you know, you can't beat perfection. They perfected their sound on the one album and then they dipped. Respect, you know? I wish more bands would understand uh, the integrity of doing something like that. Um, and then kind of out of nowhere, they announced they were releasing a new album just a few weeks ago, and then it dropped. Uh, so they've definitely managed to obtain cult status over the years. And again, kind of like I mentioned, the sound that they had pioneered back then was this really prog rock infused screamo. So, you know, you can imagine your screamo vocals, but imagine like, you know, really keyboard heavy, um, arpeggiated guitars, crazy drums to kind of complement those screaming. And you could see that branch out to so many different bands over the years that have kind of taken that on and, um, made that their entire sound but no one ever did it quite as good as gospel did it on their first record until now we're the back with their second record uh <laughs> 15 years later so right from the get-go you can tell that any juice that these guys may have had then is still around right now and that creative spark and the energy has gone nowhere in 15 years um, I think it's actually pretty impressive how this band has maintained such tightness uh, despite the fact that they haven't really been together in 15 years they still sound like a band that plays together every day and that's really important when you're making music like this so this is a lot proggier than um, their debut was it, it's definitely more Prog than screamo. I mean, the, the the kind of shouted screaming vocals are still there, but other than that, I mean, it, it's it's a really 
prog rock, almost classic rock indebted album, um, but in a really creative and, and fun way. So the first thing you hear on the record is a sound of like organs. Get used to it because the organ is the primary instrument other than maybe the drums. So the interplay between the organ and the drums is really what makes gospel's music what it is. Um, I, I'm not like a, oh wow, that drumming was so good. Like, wow, that was so technically amazing. That's not really what I look for in music. I'm looking for good songs and, you know, good experiences. But uh, this is just, uh, the drumming is insane. It's so fantastic. It's hard not to be totally captivated by it. Um, and everything else is, is just kind of secondary to that. The drums and the keyboards really carry this whole record the whole way through. Um, and the record doesn't really change much in terms of what you're hearing and what it sounds like, but they've crafted some really kick-ass songs. And it's one of those records that you just put on and you're like, this rules. Like, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know what any of the subject matter or any of this is. I don't care because what I'm hearing right now the audio experience is just fantastic. And it's like that from start to finish. Uh, just the energy and how much fun the band seems to be having, how locked in they are with each other, uh, despite the many sprawling moments that, that kind of meander off and then come right back down to earth, you know, as is typical with these more progressive bands. It's amazing. And again, just the fact that they came back 15 years later and knocked out this record that they could have released two years after their debut is so cool and so impressive. So just one of the most fun records I've heard this year. Great time. Um, I'll be listening to it all year. And just such a great comeback story. So coming in at number two is Gospel with The Loser. Coming in at number one, and I can see now, I was so proud of myself last month for sticking to 60 minutes. What are we at now? Just over 75. <laughs> sorry, guys. I'm sorry. It was the whole Kendrick Lamar thing. You know, he had if he hadn't released such a, you know, thought-provoking, discussion-oriented album, this would have been another neat and trim one, but, you know, so blame him. Uh... Coming in at number one for the month of May, we have Licky Lee I I. So, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. I don't know, whatever. I'm not Swedish. I don't care. I'm, I'm doing my best. But Licky Lee is a kind of everyone's favorite, you know, alt pop sad girl from the 2000s. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure 10 years ago or so you probably had one of her songs on your iPod. You know, she's been making that kind of classic sad girl pop for quite some time now. Um, I was never into it. It was never really my thing. Um, and 
from what I heard, her last record, So Sad, So Sexy, back in 2018, wasn't really that great anyway, so I, I've just never really had any reason to kind of listen to her. But upon the release of this record, uh, she did a few things that were very intriguing to me. Well, first of all, uh, the cover art, which is just a blurred photo of like some crazy eyes looking sad and totally messed up. Uh, that, that kind of caught my attention, for sure. Um, the album title, I, I, interesting, okay. And then just reading about how the record was made and kind of her thought process behind the writing of this record, I, I found to be really intriguing as well. So she kind of wanted to make a contrast to her last record, which was very maximalist and poppy. She wanted to make something basically as intimate as possible. Um, so all of the songs here were recorded vocally just on like a drum mic in her bedroom. Um, all the actual production was done on analog um, and, and just kind of sent back and forth between her and her uh, frequent collaborator. And she mentioned that she wanted the album to sound like, what did she say? Voice notes on LSD. And I gotta say, like, I totally know what she means, and I think she kind of nailed it, personally. Uh, the whole vibe and aesthetic of the record is very hushed, almost ASMR, ambient, murky sadness. And the whole record, as with, like, all of her records, of course, is about heartbreak and sadness. But this really brings you right into kind of the depths of despair in those those long lonely nights where all you can feel is just like the emptiness of losing someone that means so much to you and she's very successfully kind of captured that sound on this record and it's, it makes for a really unique brooding pop experience um there are a number of great songs on the record. It's a short one. It's just over 30 minutes long. There's only eight songs. So it's, it's concise. It does the job that it needs to do. And then it just kind of goes. Um, but it's all kind of centered around um, album centerpiece Carousel, which is a song that I've probably listened to a hundred times in the past week or two. Um, built around this really almost sickly sweet keyboard motif and her doing this kind of major key sadness anthem and it just sounds amazing and it's just such a beautiful incredible song and it really kind of uh, captures the whole vibe of the record so well um, and that vibe being just like, you know, heartbreak and loneliness, isolation, despair. Um, she makes lots of references to being high and being strung out. And she mentioned on press releases leading up to this album that she, you know, in order to kind of get inspired for the record, she took a lot of hallucinogens and lots of drugs and stuff like this. And, you can really hear it in here. So it's it's 
this really fascinating document of like this kind of really drugged out heartbreak broken middle-aged women making um kind of really niche music but still with the songwriting prowess of someone who knows how to write hit songs and knows how to write pop songs so yeah you get that really interesting mix of really well-written songs in really unconventionally produced ways and it, it, it makes for what I would say is easily the most compulsive listening experience of the month of May so far um, one of those albums that once it's over you just kind of put it on again and let yourself steep in the misery once again is kind of brutal as that sounds but that's just the way it is uh, again I was never a big fan of hers so I don't want to say it's a return to form but that's kind of the impression I get as well and I'm, I'm really excited for her future plans for this album she says she wants to release a version of it that's somehow even more ambient and spaced out which is like girl I don't know how you're gonna do that this is about as ambient and spaced out as you can get while still having songs but she seems to be really into the aesthetic of this album and really wants to kind of draw as much life from it as you can and uh, so I'm really excited for it um, it's just cool when someone who you know is this far into their career is, is taking risky steps and even cooler when those risky steps pay off so coming in at number one for the month of May is Licky Lee I I. Whew! And that is going to do it for this month's episode. Uh, I'm sweating really, really badly and I have to pee. So we're going to wrap this up right now. Thank you so much for listening. It's been a blast. We're almost halfway through 2022, which is insane. Um, maybe I'll do like a, like a favorite records of the year so far thing next month. Um, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. But until then, once again, thanks so much for listening. This is Phil May checking out PH5.